Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas, and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the Wisdom of... Coming up today, William Barrett on modern art and existentialism. have to love the kind of uh, unequal distribution of work that we have going on over here at The Wisdom Of. At least from my point of view, you've got to love it. Besides only having to show up for, let's be generous and let's say half of the episodes, you have to spend your time reading and reading. And when there's the option, I get assigned simply watching. For example, uh, last kind of big episode we did, you read the entirety of uh, Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, and I watched the first 45 minutes of the first movie of the increasingly low-budget Atlas Shrugged movie trilogy. For most of this week, I thought, God, am I going to be burdened with just this interminable, just horrific thought that I'm going to have to read an entire chapter of William Barrett's Irrational Man. But at the last minute, I was saved. Just like an actress who'd always dreamed of starring in a film in which she portrays a, a sexual play toy in the manipulative hands of a decades-older man who is, frankly, orders of magnitude less attractive than said actress, much like one of those actresses, I was saved by Haywood Woody Allen. For me specifically, it was his adaptation of Irrational Man. Turns out, though, much like I somehow had two friends in elementary school named Michael, Haywood's movie and Barrett's book only really share a name. I should have guessed when in some point in the movie, we have our deep, dark, brilliant philosophy professor, and he seems to think that Dostoevsky's point might just be that righteous murder will wash away your existential despair. As a result, I'm even less prepared than usual. So let's just wing this thing. How about this? Let's call what all right, let's call what Woody Allen does, his oeuvre, let's call it art. 
And his later works, like Irrational Man, for example, the movies that most people view as kind of empty and relatively garbage, or for anyone in the UK, uh, rubbish, let's call that modern art. All this could be in contrast to Alan's older films, uh, putative classics that let's just label classical art, leaving us with a view that many hold that classical art is where it's at and modern art is a nothing burger. Is this dichotomy limited to Woody Allen movies or maybe, just maybe, is it ever talked about in a broader way, perchance in a book, maybe in a book that you might have read for today's episode? Well, that was as completely convoluted as usual. I will give you this, though. You are consistent. But yeah, outside of old and new Woody Allen movies, there is a lot to say about this dichotomy between classic and modern art. Now, like you said, a lot of people have taken modern art to be, well, rubbish. But that's not going to be the view of today's thinker. So, let's get into it. So, William Barrett wrote a book called Irrational Man. A great book published in 1958, that's considered to be one of the finest introductions to the philosophy of existentialism ever written. Now, instead of talking about the book as a whole, I thought I'd try to talk about one chapter in particular. It's a chapter entitled The Testimony of Modern Art, and Barrett says some pretty interesting stuff in there. And by the way, when he turns to the figures of modern art, he has in mind the likes of people like uh, James Joyce, Picasso, Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, Faulkner, and the Dadaists, just to mention a few. Okay, so what he does in that chapter is he starts off by reminding us just how much controversy modern art invites, and how many people denigrate it. They denigrate it in the sense that they take it to be a terrible slide away from the excellent art of the past. They say that modern art just can't ever compare to the works of the old masters. But Barrett senses that there's something disingenuous going on there. What he thinks is that if people are that irritated with modern art, it's because there's something deeper going on. More specifically, he thinks that most people are annoyed by it, not because it's not as good as past art, but because it touches a sore spot in them, even if they're not fully aware of it. That's to say, the irritation they feel with modern art really just betrays the, the fact that they're implicated in what it is that the art shows them. And uh, what does it show them? Well, essentially, what it reveals to them, to us. To our world today is a kind of dislocation and spiritual poverty. Modern art, in other words, dishes out certain unpalatable truths about our particular state of being today. It reflects the sign of our times. It reflects our existential condition. Now, this isn't a bad thing, though, says Barrett. No, it's actually good, because it's honest. And uh, what's more, why should we expect our art today to reflect the same world and the same values that existed in uh, classical times? I mean, for most of the past, P 
people believed that we lived in a universe that was an ordered structure, a rational and intelligible whole. They believed in a God who, who looked over us and in a super sensible world. So, of course, their art reflected that. That's why it had something sacrosanct about it. That's why it was marked by form and beauty. Because it mirrored how it is people perceived the cosmos at that time. But things aren't quite the same for us moderns, right? I mean, Hemingway makes this pretty clear when he says, in Farewell to Arms, that after the war and all of its butchery, that nothing is sacred anymore. That all the words that we used to use, like glory and honor and courage, these are all now just empty abstractions. And so, along with him, with Hemingway, this is what the rest of modern art reveals too. It reveals the destruction of old forms and ideals. Now, actually, it's how exactly it reveals that that Barrett spends a, a bit of time on. And it's uh, super interesting. So, let's delve into that a bit. Okay, so what Barrett thinks is that modern art reveals our dislocation and our spiritual poverty by tending to flatten everything. So, one example he talks about is Cubism. You know, an early 20th century avant-garde way of painting, invented in part by Picasso and George Brock, with a heavy debt to Cezanne before them. So, what does Cubism have to do with this idea of uh, flattening things out? Well, what Cubism did is it flattened space by insisting on the two-dimensional reality of the canvas. So, instead of depicting perspective and uh, three dimensions, like artists did beautifully in the Renaissance era, the Cubists fragmented three-dimensional forms into their two-dimensional components on the canvas. Now, why did they do this? Well, what Barrett argues is that what Cubism was doing was this. It was reflecting what was now a flat and hierarchy-empty world. In other words, painting that had depth and perspective and uh, three dimensions made perfect sense in a world where people could look up to a god, where there was a sense of hierarchy and uh, verticality and expansion and so on. But now, well, in a world where, to quote Nietzsche, God is dead, well, that's one marked by inwardness and flatness and horizontality. So, that's why the Cubists created that style of painting, to reflect life not in the Middle Ages, inside Dante's eternal and luminous vault, but in modern society, where, to quote Yeats, all ladders are gone. Okay, but this idea of flattening things out took other forms as well, says Barrett. So, for example, another form it took was that it removed the, the subject from the center of the picture or painting. Now, this is radical because uh, in traditional Western painting, there is often a central subject or figure placed at the center of the picture. And um, everything else around it is just background material 
and so, in some sense, subordinate to it. I mean, just think of the Mona Lisa, for example. Now, why? What did this reflect? Well, to some extent, it reflected our sense of self-importance, our special essence, our sacred humanity. Now, the modern artist, what do they do? Well, as I just said, they displace the subject of the picture. The subject is relegated to the periphery, or at most, the subject is intended as no more important than all the other spaces on the canvas. And um, what does this speak to? Well, it speaks to a new conception of ourselves, one that's more broken and fragmented. It reflects the more modern conception of the human being as having no fixed or eternal essence. Okay, well, these sorts of changes have taken place not just in painting, of course, but in all the arts. And actually, Barrett does say something interesting about modern art's effect on literature. I mean, since Aristotle, literature, storytelling, has always been very structured and and logical. It pretty much always had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And there were no loose threads. Everything was there for a reason. Well, again, Barrett argues that this reflected the classical view of the cosmos. It arose in a culture that viewed the universe as orderly and rational and intelligible. But with modern literature, things change radically. I mean, if you've ever read someone like James Joyce or Faulkner, you pretty much sense these changes immediately. For them, reality or life wasn't always rational, and its, its sequence wasn't always logical. In other words, being wasn't intelligible, and there just wasn't a reason for everything. And existence had a load of loose ends. So, no surprise, this is exactly the sort of view of things we see being expressed in their writing, both in form and content. In fact, as Barrett says, for modern artists like them living in that time to have written novels characterized by logical coherence and a picture of the world without ambiguity and contingency, well, that would have been a transgression of the highest sorts. And that's because it would have been a travesty upon the historical being of the artist. Okay, well, so Barrett does mention one more kind of flattening out that modern art brings, and this is what he calls the the flattening out of values. And I think that there's basically two parts to this. So, first of all, what modern art does is it treats all objects as having equal value. So, for example, for someone like Cezanne, an apple or a tablecloth is painted just as monumentally as a mountain. Now, again, we have to remember that this is a radical break from classical art. I mean, in the great tradition of Western art, Certain objects were perceived as banal, and others as sublime. And what art did, of course, is it usually treated the most sublime ones. In other words, 
Because the tradition perceived things of this world in terms of a hierarchy, painters were just expected to depict what was at the top of that hierarchy. So that's why most paintings of that time portray religious scenes or objects, or great battles, or noble people. Well, again, not so for modern art. What fills their canvases are objects like old guitars, and empty bottles, and broken tables. And this is because they no longer saw the world in terms of a hierarchy. In other words, any distinction between the banal and the sublime had been abolished. Now, I think it's important to add that this didn't mean that nothing had any value. No, I think what Barrett takes it to mean was that transcendental importance, or inexhaustible richness, wasn't just limited to a few select and noble things. No, for the modern artist, a tablecloth could be just as inexhaustible in its richness as the Himalayan mountains. Okay, but I said that there were two parts to this idea of the flattening out of values in modern art. Well, the other one has to do not with objects, but with people, with characters. I mean, think about the image of the ancient Greek man. He's always presented as noble and uh, idealized, right? Well, what is modern art's image of the human being? Well, again, whatever it is exactly, it's a flattened one. As Barrett says, in modern art, man is laid bare. He's flayed and cut into bits. In modern literature, the hero is usually an anonymous figure. Or he's faceless. Or he's a nobody. Or he's an outsider. As Hemingway says in one of his short stories, man is nothing. Or think about the sculptor Giacometti's attenuated and frail and porous figures. Or think about Beckett's tramps in his play Waiting for Godot. In all of this, modern art is responding to or reflecting the sign of the times. A time where the classical image of the human being has broken down. Where our very essence is in question and where our fragility and contingency and our doubt dominates. Now, here's the thing. What modern art reveals, all of it may sound a bit depressing or disconcerting. But, you see, for Barrett, it's not. It's not because what it does is it reveals more of our humanity to ourselves. And it exalts humility. And it has the courage and honesty to celebrate all of our doubts and all the so-called dirty little corners of our existence. This is how modern art is revelatory. And like I said, if it means confessing to a spiritual poverty, it's a confession worth having.
listening to The Wisdom of Podcasts. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Marcus Aurelius.